Please remain standing with me and pray. Heavenly Father, I am acutely aware of my inadequacies and my unworthiness to preach this sermon. Lord, pour out your spirit upon me, and may whatever words I have to say, may they be the words your people need to hear from you this morning. Strengthen me by your spirit and strengthen your people to receive from you your good gifts in word and sacrament. And so we commend ourselves to your love and care this morning. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. You may be seated. And good morning. Good to see you all here this morning. In our gospel reading, in our gospel reading, we heard a familiar, though slightly different and shorter version of a prayer that we love here at Christ Church, the Lord's Prayer. And it's hard to be Anglican and not love the Lord's Prayer. It's hard to be Christian and not love the Lord's Prayer because for us Anglicans, it's in every single prayer service we have in the Book of Common Prayer, whether it's a full morning prayer or family prayer for families or the prayer for families in the morning. We love the Lord's Prayer, and rightly so, because this is Jesus' model prayer. It's his instructional prayer. If Jesus had a YouTube channel, this would be the first video that he had instructing us on the Christian faith, how to pray. And this prayer can be easily divided into two broad concerns. First, it is concerned with God, with worshiping him in and through our lives with reverence. Hallowed be your name. But it's also concerned with God's mission and will being accomplished in this world. Your kingdom come. And second, it is concerned with our daily needs, food, forgiveness, guidance. Lead us not into temptation. So two concerns. It's concerned with God and it's concerned with our daily needs. And this morning we're going to explore the first two clauses of verse 4 there in Luke chapter 11. And this is what those two clauses say. I'll read it again. And forgive us for our sins. For we ourselves forgive everyone who is indebted to us. You know, it's interesting that in the second part of this prayer, when we turn to our needs, our basic human needs, that it combines together food and forgiveness as such basic daily human need. Now, I know you guys pretty well. I think by now it's been two years since we've been here. And I'm convinced that you're convinced that food is necessary. Huh? Am I right? I know we had COVID. We haven't had the potlucks we've wanted to have. But I'm convinced that you're convinced that food is necessary. But are you convinced that forgiveness is likewise necessary? That it's a daily need for life? Are you convinced that as much as your body needs and longs for food on a daily basis... It needs and longs, your soul needs and longs for forgiveness. And as the absence of food for your body will eventually mean the death of your body, are you convinced that the absence of forgiveness in your life will eventually mean the death of your soul? Are you convinced of those realities? You see, what Jesus is doing here in this prayer, among other things, is that he's making a claim about the nature of reality. The nature of reality when he combines food and forgiveness as basic human needs. And this is what he's saying. Forgiveness, 
We all know food. We love it. We, 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 it's a necessity because we love the taste. It's a necessity because our bodies demand it. We get that one. But forgiveness? Jesus is making a claim. Forgiveness is as basic a human need as food. And notice here that forgiveness as a basic need does not just involve us confessing, Lord, forgive us our sins, and receiving the forgiveness of God. That is hard in and of itself, but the next clause is harder, I think. For we, for we ourselves forgive everyone, everyone who is indebted to us. Forgive us our sins, for we ourselves forgive everyone who is indebted to us. Do you believe that forgiving those who have sinned against you, those who have wronged you, those who have hurt you, those who have wounded you, do you believe that that forgiveness is daily, a daily necessity, and that your soul will die apart from it? So this morning, we're going to look at forgiveness. Both sides of it. God's forgiveness for us and us forgiving those who have wounded and sinned against us. So let's begin with that first clause there in verse 4. Forgive us our sins. Jesus is teaching his disciples to pray to the Father, forgive us for our sins. And in order to ask God for forgiveness of sins, we have to know that we're sinners. We have to know that we have sin. right? And so, how do we know if we have sin? Well, someone has to show us. Someone has to tell us. You know, Paul in his letters frequently lets us know that the law, it's not, it's not there to save us, but it was there to show us our sin, to be that schoolmaster, that tutor that taught us that we fall short of God's glory so that we may fall upon the mercy and the grace of God. And so forgiveness, the forgiveness of God begins with him giving us notice, giving us notice, revealing to us our sin. When Jesus came onto the scene, when he took on human flesh, and at the beginning of most of the Gospels, almost each one of the Gospels, we hear this type of message from Jesus. I'm just going to read to you what it says in the beginning of Mark chapter 1. This is Jesus. The time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe the Gospel, the good news. Repent and believe the Gospel. His command to repent gives us notice that we have indeed been living our lives out of step with the ways of God, out of step with the ways of God's kingdom. And just think about how this means that the main problem, how this means that the main problem for us as humans, my main problem, your main problem, our neighbor's main problem is not our level of education, it's not our poverty, it's not our privilege, it's not our biological sex, it is sin. Our main problem is sin. And Jesus came in his incarnation in part to notify us, to notify us of that problem. You know, Paul doesn't mince words either when he describes this problem in our reading from his letter to the Colossians in verse 13 of chapter 2, when he says this, and you, now he identifies the you he's talking about, you who were dead in your trespasses, you who were dead in your sins. This is what sin does to you. It kills you. That sounds like a problem. That sounds like a problem. It kills you. It, It numbs your soul to life. It numbs your soul 
to the flourishing that God gives you, that he has made for you to flourish. This is the main problem with us, and God's forgiveness, of course, throughout Scripture from Old and New Testament, his forgiveness is a solution. And that forgiveness begins with God giving us notice, telling us how we have departed from his ways, how we have gone off on our own, how we have sinned against him, and indeed how we have wounded him, hurt him. But next, the forgiveness of God is based upon God giving up his legal demand. So God gives us notice. The next thing about divine forgiveness is that he gives up his legal demands. Just listen to Paul there as we continue on there in Colossians chapter 2. And you, who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, that's a reference to the largely Gentile audience being not a part of the covenant relationship with God. You, who were dead in your trespasses and sins, and out of covenant relationship with God, God made alive together with him. How? How did he do that? Having forgiven us all our trespasses, having forgiven us all our sins by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. And notice in the next phrase what God had to do for that to take place, for him to cancel the record of our sins. This he set aside, sweeping our sins under the rug. No, 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 no. This he set aside by nailing them to the cross. Nailing them to the cross. Even God himself cannot sweep sin under a rug. He cannot just forget about it and consider that forgiveness. No, his justice demands, his justice demands that sin be dealt with. Yet in one sense, God steps outside of the normal system of justice, his normal system of justice, and at the same time steps into a system of mercy and a world of grace. And within that context of mercy and grace, God dealt with our sin debt in Jesus. He satisfied the demands of his justice against each one of us, not by demanding our lives. Right? That's the normal course of justice, by demanding our lives in response to our sin. But he doesn't do that. But by the means of the bloody brutal and inconvenient death of his son, Jesus Christ. He deals with our sins in a way that expresses limitless mercy and limitless grace. This is how God deals with sin. The price God paid to deal with your debt of sin was the ripping and writhing of his son's body upon the cross. You know, that at least tells us, that at least tells us this, that God will stop at nothing. God will stop at nothing to rescue you from the hell that you deserve. God will stop at nothing. He didn't even spare his own son to save you from the normal course of justice. We can say amen to that. Praise God for that. That's why we're here. That's why we're here. Because God has done that through Jesus. It reveals to us the limitless nature of God's mercy and grace. And it invites us, this prayer invites us and indeed commands us to throw ourselves upon God, upon him in order to receive his limitless forgiveness. You know, God is an infinite being. The triune God is an infinite being, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And whatever he does, he does to the fullness of something. He does it to the max. He has no limits. There are no constraints. So his mercy and grace are without limit. They are without constraint. His forgiveness is without limit. It's without constraint. You have done nothing in your life 
that surpasses the limits of God's grace and mercy. Amen. His forgiveness, his limitless forgiveness was purchased by Christ, again, the triune God, his limitless love for you in his sacrifice on that brutal cross. And this is what Christian forgiveness is. This is what it demands. Christian forgiveness demands such loving self-sacrifice. God gives up his legal demand on our lives by giving up his son to the cross. Jesus gives up his life to the cross so that we might experience the limitless grace and mercy and forgiveness and love of the triune God. So the forgiveness of God, it gives notice. It gives up legal rights. And then finally here, the forgiveness of God concludes with him giving himself to us, that is, uniting himself to us completely, where his life becomes our life. And maybe no one in Scripture states this final act of giving within God's forgiveness more clearly than Peter on the day of Pentecost, when, as you know, he's giving notice to those in the temple there that they indeed crucified the Messiah. They indeed crucified the Messiah. And they ask him, what are we to do? What shall we do, they say. And in response, Peter says this, repent. Familiar message from Jesus. The church is carrying on the ministry of Jesus, giving notice. Repent and be baptized. Every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of sins. And you will, what? Receive the Holy Spirit. Receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promises for you and your children and for all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. That intimacy. God calls us to this intimate relationship. So God not only just deals with our sin, but he gives us the gift of himself. He gives us his very life. He gives us his spirit so that we might abide in his presence forever. Reconcile. You see, forgiveness is, God's forgiveness doesn't simply end with canceling our record of sin. I think many times we'd love for that to be the case, especially if we're supposed to forgive others as God forgives us. No, his forgiveness concludes with giving us the gift of himself, his spirit. He gives himself to us fully. It would have been easy for God to have said, okay, your sins are forgiven Now get out of my court and do whatever the heck you want. Just get away from me. You're forgiven. I don't want to see you again. Go. Or God could have kept us at a safe distance. You've sinned against me. You've hurt me. You've wounded me. I've forgiven you. But I'm not going to risk being in a relationship with you. You've proven to be untrustworthy. How could I ever risk that again? But God doesn't do that, does he? And we are greater for it. We're better for it. And aren't you glad that that's not... That's not how God's forgiveness works. That's not how forgiveness works in the kingdom of God. It ends with God pouring out his spirit, his very life, pouring out the new life of his kingdom into our hearts and souls and lives. So when God forgives us, he holds nothing of himself back from us. He holds nothing of himself back from us. This is not, as I read on Mayo Clinic's website, on John Hopkins' website, the need for forgiveness. And forgiveness is simply just a relinquishing 
the relinquishing of bitterness or anger? Aren't you glad that God just doesn't simply relinquish his own personal bitterness or anger towards us, but indeed satisfies it? And not only satisfies it, but gives himself completely and fully to us. When God forgives, he holds nothing of himself back. He unites his life completely with us, so much so that Paul can say in verse 4 of chapter 3 of the, of the letter to the Colossians, that Jesus Christ is our very life. Our lives are hidden with Christ in God. And when he appears, your very life will appear. Christ, your life will appear. Okay, so that's that first part. That's divine forgiveness. That's God's forgiveness. It begins with him giving us notice of sin, repent. And it's made possible, forgiveness is made possible only by him giving up his right to punish us by laying that penalty on his son outside of the normal course of justice. And it ends with God giving himself and his life to us through his spirit. Now, as I mentioned earlier, forgiveness as a basic human need does not end with us receiving God's forgiveness. It also includes us forgiving those who have sinned against us. And this is where I think we begin to squirm a bit in our seats because it's tough enough. It's tough enough to humble ourselves and confess sin to God, maybe in the privacy of our own home, maybe in the privacy of a confession with a priest. That's tough enough. It's exponentially harder, it seems, to actually give forgiveness to those who have truly wounded us and hurt us. Is it not? I mean, each one of us here, I'm sure, has a situation in your mind where you would say, it was so hard to forgive that person or you might have a situation where you haven't yet forgiven them or haven't sought forgiveness and you know how difficult right now that decision is to make. It seems nearly impossible to forgive those who have sinned against us. And this is especially true in our culture. In a wonderful essay entitled The Fading of Forgiveness, some of you might have read this out of Comet Magazine a few years ago, Timothy Keller recounts how the Amish community surprised the nation in their acts of love and forgiveness to the family of the man who shot 10 of their children in 2006 and then killed himself. And Keller recounts that four years later, a group of scholars wanted to figure out how we as a nation could learn from their type of forgiveness. He summarizes their conclusions when he says, one of their main conclusions was that our secular culture is not likely to produce people who can handle suffering the way the Amish did. They argued that the Amish ability to forgive was based on two things. First, at the heart of their faith was a man dying for, their, for his enemies. Through communal practices, this self-sacrificing figure was seen and sung and believed and rehearsed and celebrated constantly. What we do each Sunday when we gather together, by the way, for Jesus to give his life and forgive his tormentors was an act of enormous love and spiritual strength. And so within the worldview of the Amish, they saw forgiveness as the chief gift, as a chief gift and virtue. That led the authors, those four authors, or those authors four years later, to this other point. They argued that forgiveness is a form of self-renunciation, giving up your perfect right to pay back to the person what they did to you. This directly opposes how Americans are taught to think and live. We are taught self-realization and assertion that your happiness, your interests, and your needs always, always come first. 
a culture promoting self-maximization, one that pity, one that pits self-fulfillment against self-sacrifice, will much more likely produce will much more likely produce revenge in a culture, much like the pagan world of old. Do we really want to go back to that? Most of us have been formed by, and this is picking back up, most of us have been formed by a culture that nourishes revenge and mocks grace. The authors concluded, and in such a therapeutic culture, forgiveness is seen as self-hating, and revenge and anger will be seen as more authentic as long as you do not let the anger become too unpleasant for you and mess with your psychological well-being, end quote. As a result, as a result, Christ Church, God's forgiveness that gives notice, that sacrificially gives up the right for retribution and gives oneself back to the offender, back to the one who wounded you, is seen as self-defeating and dangerous even to the flourishing of individual people. Yet, this is exactly what Jesus' prayer invites us and indeed commands us to do, to forgive everyone, everyone who sinned against us. The forgiveness of the second clause there in the Lord's Prayer is defined by God's forgiveness in the first clause. And we find a blueprint for such forgiveness for us in our relationships with one another in Matthew 18, where Jesus lays out this blueprint when he says in verse 15, if your brother or if your sister sins against you, go and tell him or her their fault between you and them alone. You see, Jesus clearly tells us that forgiveness even for us not just God, but even for us, begins by giving notice. By giving notice of the, to the sin of the one who has wounded us. And it may seem easier or more saintly for the wounded party to suffer their pain in silence instead of risking ongoing wounds by confronting the person, by telling the person of the sin that has happened. However, as we know, as we know from the Lord's Prayer, if we do not do this, we risk soul-crushing death, soul-numbing death. You know, I've seen this happen in a previous church that I served at. On staff, I saw someone unwilling to say, to speak what it was, how they felt someone had sinned against them. And they said, well, it's just between me and the Lord. And it ate at them. Bitterness crept into their heart and their soul. And it becomes overwhelming. Maybe you know something of that. Don't allow that to take place. Ask God for his grace to speak, speak the truth, to confront there. And it's not an unloving thing to do so. Christian forgiveness requires the one who has been sinned against to speak. And that's why it is radically unfair. Christian forgiveness is so unfair. So unfair because it asks so much of the one who has been sinned against. You are the one who's been sinned against who has to go and tell the other person that they have sinned against you. You're the one, like God, who has to give up rights. You're the one who has to forgive and risk being hurt again. Christian forgiveness is ridiculous in the most, in the best way possible. It's ridiculous. 
It's otherworldly. And so we have to give notice of sin. And we cannot give notice of sin unless we have also given up our right to demand payment for the hurt that we have suffered. And we do not enforce Christian, for, in Christian forgiveness. We do not enforce a punishment upon the one who sinned against us, nor do we exact reparations. We do not make life miserable for the other person as a way of balancing the scales, though we might feel completely justified in doing so. No, this giving up, this Christian forgiveness is sacrifice at the greatest order. It's sacrifice that embodies the sacrifice of God. It is a denial of our rights that embodies the self-denying and self-sacrificial love of Christ wherein God has forgiven you. You've experienced this. Jesus' prayer reminds us that we are to extend it to others. Finally, Jesus reveals in Matthew chapter 18 that forgiving others concludes with us giving the gift of restored relationship to them. And this might even be harder than telling someone that they've sinned against you. Listen to that second half of verse 15. If he or she listens to you, you have gained your brother or you have gained your sister. In the end, Christian forgiveness is a pure, supernatural, heavenly giving. The receiver does not deserve it. The receiver does not deserve your forgiveness. And you, as the giver, want nothing in return. Isn't that what God? We deserve nothing. We deserve no forgiveness from God. And God expects nothing in return. There's no works that we can do to earn it. In the end, Christian forgiveness is utterly beyond us. Forgiveness is a repaying evil with kindness, doing all the things that love requires, even when you do not feel love. For you can do love. You can do love even when the feeling of love is not present. I can't help but think that's probably what was going through Jesus' mind in Gethsemane. Lord, take this from me. I want no part of it. I would rather do something else. But your will, I'll do it regardless of how I feel about it. Your will be done. This giving is the greatest sacrifice we can make in our relationships with one another because it is the complete giving away of ourselves for the life of the one who has wounded us just as Jesus completely gave himself away for us who wounded him so deeply. Now each one of us here, like myself as well, we're keenly aware that we are not able in ourselves to do that. It is beyond us. It is beyond you to forgive as Jesus and as God forgives you. We have an infinite capacity to sin against one another, but a finite capacity to forgive. Isn't that true? Isn't that true of yourself? It's true of me. And that's why the power of forgiveness is sourced not in ourselves, but in God alone. And that's why we must ask for his forgiveness first, so that we can be so fully united with his life, his spirit, his power that we could possibly then begin to forgive in such a way as he has forgiven us. True Christian forgiveness is always and everywhere empowered by our infinite God, by our infinite God. We may practice forgiveness, but it is Jesus Christ alone through his spirit at work in us who empowers it. 
He is the true source of its transfiguring love, and it will transfigure. This love will transfigure your marriage. This love will transfigure your relationship with parents and children. This love will transfigure your relationship with friends that have been broken and marred because of sin, whether it's your sin or another's sin. This love of God that's at work in his people will transform your life. And it will do so because the love of God is at work in us. And that love, that forgiveness, that grace, that mercy is without limit. So this morning, Christ Church, throw yourself upon the mercy and grace of God. Ask him to forgive you of your sins. We'll do that here shortly. And then go from here. Go from here. And give notice to those who may have sinned against you. And if you have sinned against others, go and confess to them. Acknowledge that sin to them. And God will be at work in you through his spirit to bring about life. True life. And flourishing, not only for yourself, but for others. And in doing so, we will have our daily, basic needs met. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.